It's true that uh, this is the last sermon I'll preach as the senior pastor of Maple Avenue. Um, but the whole principle behind the approach to preaching here is that it's not about any one personality or figure, but it's about God's Word and sitting around God's Word together. And so what we have been doing is what will continue to be done here. We'll be fed richly by the Word of God, not because of some great rhetorician. So, with that in mind, we are continuing our series, uh, The Art of Christian Living. The topic for this day is repent, lament, meditate. And uh, to have God's Word before us at the outset, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. If you're using the Bible that's in the rack in front of you that looks like this, it's on page 512. Psalm 119 is on page 512. Uh, some of you are thinking he's going to read the whole thing. It's, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. No, I'm going to read one stanza of it. So it'll be the bet stanza, stanza verses 9 through, eight, uh, 9 through 16. So Psalm 119, 9 through 16. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Yahweh, Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. and the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is God's word. You can be seated as we pray. Father, today, like every other Sunday, we gather around your word because we know we need it. We pray, having read your word, that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and our minds because we want to be changed by your word, not just to hear it. So use your word. Minister to us. Strengthen us. Correct us. Encourage us. Accomplish your purposes through it. May Jesus be exalted. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. I am no physician, but here are four keys to your physical health. Drink plenty of water. Eat a variety of foods in moderation. Move frequently. Regularly get your heart rate up. 
I'm no psychiatrist, but here are four keys to your psychological health. Prioritize good sleep. Limit your intake of screens and social media. Spend time with life-giving people. Be outdoors without electronics. But as important as our physical and psychological health is, our underlying soul health is more important. Of course, our bodies and our minds and our souls are all intricately connected. It's not like they're independent systems. But soul health is the underlying health that is critical to all the others. It's the soil, and the others are like the plants. The Bible's clear on this throughout. So Jesus spoke of the priority of the, priority of the soul over the body in Matthew 10, 28. In 1 Timothy 4, 8, the Bible elevates godliness over physical health, even though it says both are important. 1 Corinthians 11.30 suggests that at times our physical bodies can suffer because of, or uh, uh, on account of spiritual reasons. And the Psalms are replete with references to emotional tumult because of unhealth in our souls. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When we cultivate the health of our souls, it facilitates broader health. Put simply, while physical and psychological health are both important, our most important health priority is the health of our soul. So in this final sermon to Maple Avenue, I want to provide four keys to the health of our soul. Originally, I'd only planned three keys. But as I prayed and prepared, I felt I had to add a fourth. So here they are. Repent, lament, meditate, and connect. Repent, lament, meditate, connect. So the first key is repent. The common connotation of the word repent is heavy, dark, somber. Maybe it's spoken with someone staring down over us, red-faced, wagging their finger. Repent! But this word is actually one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. I want to change our connotation of it. I want to think of it gilded in gold, suspended in an archway over the entrance to a beautiful garden where the sun is shining and the sky is blue and the colors are vibrant. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Mark chapter 1. It's on page 836 if you're using the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 1, page 836. And look at verses 14 and 15. 
Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or believe in the good news. So this is Mark telling us that Jesus is coming, bringing good news. This fallen, broken, dark world in Jesus is giving way to the kingdom of God. Jesus has come to restore, to redeem, to save. And amidst the dark, thorn-infested, overgrown wilderness of this world, there sits this garden paradise, beautiful and lush. The kingdom of God is at hand. And suspended over the entrance of the gate are these beautiful words, repent and believe. The entrance requirement into that garden, into that kingdom, isn't being righteous enough. Thank God. The entrance requirement isn't being deserving. I'm going to choose the best amongst you to come into my garden. If it was those things, the reality is none of us, none of us could ever enter. The entrance requirement to repent. So what is repentance? How do I do it? The Old Testament word for repent means to turn. It's a very simple word. The New Testament word means like a change or transformation of your mind. Here's how I can best describe it. Think of that child, maybe it's a toddler or a little one-year-old that clings to their parent like their life depended on it. You know, the legs wrapped around their torso, the arm on the neck, and the head nestled into the shoulder. And all is right with the world when they're hanging on their parent. It's a beautiful thing. Of course, if you're the parent and you're like, never, never let go of me. But trust me, it's a beautiful thing. Say that now. But that same child, you come and you try to pry them away from their parent. All of a sudden, it's a whole new ball game. The thought of letting go is terrible, and the tremors start, and the tears start, and the fit starts, right? We're like those children. We're born clinging to our sin. Clinging like this is the only safe place to our rebellion against God clinging to personal autonomy and the ways of this world, and we cling to it for dear life. And as long as we're saddled up with our sin, we're fine. But if someone tries to rip us from our idols, we start coming unglued. Well, this is what repentance is. Repentance is letting go of our death grip on rebellion against God and turning 
and clinging instead to Jesus. You could say belief is clinging instead to Jesus, but I'll wrap that up with repentance. So that is the essence of repentant and believing. Letting go of what you cling to, turning to Jesus, wrapping around Him and clinging to Him. And repentance is the first and most important step in our soul's health because in order for our souls to be healthy, they need a whole relationship with their Creator. But our rebellion has severed us from God and broken that relationship. So our souls can't be healthy. They just can't unless we're reconnected with our Creator. And that is why Jesus came. He came to bear the penalty of our sin so that by repenting and trusting Him, we could be restored to a whole relationship with our Father. So repentance reestablishes our relationship with our Creator. But the gilded gift of repentance doesn't end the moment we embrace Jesus. Because as long as we have these sinful bodies, we keep sinning. Our old flesh keeps pulling at us, luring us back to the same old idols. But hear this. Every time we sin... We can repent. And every time we repent, Jesus forgives us. The old uh, German monk, Martin Luther, is famous for nailing 95 theses to a door and thus sparking the Protestant Reformation. Do you know what the very first thesis of those 95 was? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What do I do when I sin as a Christian? Some of us are like, well, I know I'm forgiven. I'll just keep right on going. That's not right. What do I do as a Christian when I sin? Ah, I'm not good enough for God. Crippled with shame. Bowed, laid low. Oh, I got to hide it and try and be righteous over here so I feel better. None of that. The biblical prescription is repent. That's why it's so great. I just, I don't love that. I love him. That's what we got to do. Repent. So let's, let's say you snap and yell at your kids. I wouldn't know what that's like, right, kids? <laughs> Just repent. Jesus forgives you. You name the sin. You're specific. You don't say, hey, I'm bad. Help me, God. No, no. I shouldn't have, in that moment, been so frustrated with the situation and my lack of control over it that I yelled at my kids. That's not who I want to be, God. I want to be like Jesus. So I renounce that. Help me be more like you. That's what I do. 
Name the sin, be specific, renounce it, let go of any clinging to it. Tell Jesus you're going to cling to him. And boom, like that, you're restored. Or give another example. Let's say you've been asked to take on a leadership role within the church. As you think about it, you know it's the right thing to do. God's given you the abilities and the capacity to do that. Most of your motives are good in it. But there's a part of you, because you have a sinful flesh, that likes the recognition it brings. It feels good to be acknowledged for being a godly leader in this church. I like that people are going to be saying, I'm glad you're in this role. So what do you do? You say, well, I've got some bad motives, so I just won't, I won't do anything, because maybe then it's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, or the right thing for the wrong reasons. No. You do the right thing, and you do what Christians always have to do. Anything we do has got some bad motives in it, so you just repent of the bad motives and keep doing the good thing, not crippled by them. Of course you have bad motives. All of us do. Repent and trust Jesus and keep going. You see, it's a beautiful, beautiful word. The world's system likes to divide us into the guilty and the innocent. So right now, those with power and privilege are always guilty, and those who are powerless and oppressed are always innocent. Now, this system isn't entirely off. The Bible often takes aim at those in power, especially when they're blind to how awful they're behaving or using their position for themselves instead of serve others. And God also says that he is on the side of the oppressed. But here's where the Bible diverges from the world's system. It says... We are all sinners. All of us alike sinners. Now, that doesn't mean at all, and when you read the Bible, it's clear that the victim of abuse deserved it because they're a sinner. And in some specific situations, there's clearly guilty and innocent parties. Again, you see that throughout Scripture. But even for the innocent party, even for the victim, their soul will do well if they know how to examine their own hearts and actions and confess their sins to God, repent of it, and know the beauty of that wholeness with their Creator. For all of us, no matter our situation, repentance is key to the health of our soul. It's the gateway to forgiveness, the path to wholeness with our Creator. It's the only way to deal with the arsenic of sin that would otherwise poison our soul. Repent. It's the first word in Jesus' gospel message. The second key, then, to a healthy soul rhymes with it. Lament. Lament is when we take our heartaches, our pain, our outrage, our sense of injustice, and bring them to God. 
don't know about you, but sometimes that weight, the weight of life can just pile high on our shoulders and we don't know what to do with it. Perhaps you think it's wrong or lacking in piety to take our case to God. To make a complaint to Him. That kind of thinking is false. We must bring those things to God. Look at Lamentations chapter 3 with me. This is on page 688. Lamentations chapter 3. Some who know their Bibles are using the page number for this one. 688. This book is called Lamentations. And in chapter 3, verses 13 and 19, hear how the prophet speaks to God. I should say he speaks of God, but it's, it turns at the end to speaking to God. So we know this is a speech to God. So Lamentations 3.13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made my, me cower in ashes. My soul's bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Is the prophet speaking on behalf of Jerusalem? It's very pointed, isn't it? It's very specific. Lament. You talk that way with God ever? We see the same kind of lament in Job's words to God. Or in many of the Psalms, but I think of Psalm 44 and 88. Or I think of the prophetic book of Habakkuk. The whole prophetic book is built around two complaints he brings to God. Lament is not unpious. Lament is biblically prescribed. And yet we don't know how to do it. We need to learn how to slow down and reflect on what exactly is bothering us. I'll just add an aside. Men, I think in general, we especially need to learn how to do this. We're not very attuned to what's going on in the inner life, and we just kind of soldier on, totally unaware that there's something eating at us. But all of us, all of us need to listen to the pain we're feeling and reflect on it and then, and this is the critical part, itemize it before God. Tell Him exactly and specifically what's bothering us. Even if it takes the form of a complaint against Him, at the end of the day, any complaint I have is going to go to the boss because He's sovereign. 
How do we handle it when we are wronged? Lament. What do we do in the face of horrible injustice? Lament. What do we do when our hearts are injured? Lament. What do we do when suffering wears us down? Lament. We have to learn to take our pains to Jesus. Itemize them. Be specific. Tell him what is eating at us, even if he is the target of our angst. Lament. It's critical to the health of our soul. Repent, lament, and meditate. That's the third key to our soul's health. Repent is how we handle our sin. Lament is how we handle the pain that this fallen world throws at us. But meditate is how we allow God to speak into all of that and shape our soul accordingly. See, these are not independent things we do. They all flow together. At the outset of the sermon, we read the second stanza of Psalm 119. Turn there again. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack, as again, it's on page 512, 512. So much in that great stanza. There's a couple famous verses. Verse 11 is pretty famous. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Talks about hiding God's word in our hearts. Growing up, I thought that was talking about memorizing the Bible. But hiding it in our hearts goes far beyond memory. Look at the rest of the stanza. You see how he talks about delighting in God's word? Or fixing his eyes on it? Or asking God to really teach it to him? And he specifically mentions meditating on it. So storing God's word in our heart goes beyond memorizing, and it means treasuring it, ruminating on it, lingering upon it, savoring it, reflecting in light of it. I think think it's important for Christians to be reading the Bible broadly. We need to know what the whole thing is saying. We need to read for breadth. But we also need to read for depth. And in some ways, the former, the breadth, serves the latter, the depth. By reading broadly, we know what verses to meditate on in our given situation. I'd say almost whatever our situation, there should be certain passages we are meditating on. What what do I mean by meditating? Does it mean you kind of say it over a phrase from the Bible over and over mindlessly with your legs crossed, 
hoping for some out-of-body experience? If you guess no, you're correct. Rather, it means thinking carefully and slowly through the verse. And then reflecting carefully on your life in light of that verse and talking to God in light of that verse. That's what I mean by meditating. It's really slowing down and camping out, reflecting on your own life, examining it, looking to God. Let me, give, let me just give two examples so you can see what I mean. Turn to uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14. It's on page 998. So let's say, for example, that you are struggling with temptation towards sexual sin. So you know Titus 2, 11 to 14 is a great passage to meditate on. So let's just do it together for a minute here. It starts, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So you see that and you think, I am such a sinner. I realize that in my own flesh. But I am so grateful for the grace of God that appeared when Jesus came. And that, that salvation is for everybody and is for me. Thank you, God, for what Jesus has done so a sinner like me doesn't have to earn right standing with you or earn salvation, but it is by grace. You might even reflect, how often am I thinking about what God has done for me in Christ and the grace that's mine? bringing salvation to all people, but training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God, help your gospel to be something that doesn't just remind me I'm saved, but also trains me to live the kind of life you want me to live. And then I think over the last few hours, or since I last meditated on this passage, and I think, where have I been pursuing ungodliness, harboring a, a worldly thought, an ungodly thought? Maybe I was looking at something too long and I realized that. So God, I was, that was not something that I should have been fixing my eyes on and I, I confess that. It's not, it's not what your grace is teaching me. Or maybe you entertained a thought and just kind of dwelled on it that you should have divested your mind of. God, that was not the kind of thinking I need to have. That's worldly thinking. It's ungodly. I repent of it. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So I think of each one of those words. I think, how much does that mark my life? What are some of the things I'm doing in my life are they marked by those things? Maybe I linger. Is self-control. Being upright and godly. You see what I'm doing? I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I'm just trying to... This is what meditating on is. It's reflecting. It's lingering. It's looking at the words. It's talking to God in light of it. It's processing your life in light of that. That's how you Meditate. You find the passage you need. You linger over it. You reflect on your life in light of it. You let it wash over you and change you. I said I was going to give a couple examples. Let me give one other. 
I won't do it the same way. I'll do it a little differently. Let's say you are single and really want to be married. That, that desire consumes much of your thought life. Well, there are passages to land on and meditate, if that's your situation. Perhaps a passage that describes what God values in a prospective husband or wife. And so you're going to keep like examining your own desires and saying, is this aligned well with God's? No, no, God, I, I'm valuing this a little bit too much. I'm valuing this a little too much. I want to think more like you on this. Or perhaps you go to a passage that shows how God values singleness and calls us to use our singleness, if that's the state we're in, to live devoted to him in an undistracted way. So you say, God, is that how I'm using my singleness? You examine your life in light of that. Some of that meditating will get mixed with lament. God, I want to be married, though. I want these things. Some will get mixed with repentance. I'm valuing the wrong things. I'm not pursuing you. I'm not using my singleness like I should. But that meditation is critical because it allows the mind of Christ to shape our souls. That meditation on the Word allows the Word to become the straight pole around which we train our otherwise twisted trunk that our life is. It keeps us growing true and strong. It helps us grow more like Jesus. So repent, lament, meditate. Of course, that was supposed to be the end of the sermon that I had planned. But I feel that there is a fourth key to soul health. And that's connect. You guys know that one of the passages I take this church to oftenly is often is Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. So just a few pages back from where we were in Titus. Page 980, no, that's Ephesians. Page 977, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. I had my Bible open to the wrong page. That's why I said the wrong page number. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Talks about this vision for how the church is supposed to function and it gets to verses 15 and 16. And according to those verses, just look there, how do we grow more like Jesus? Look. How do we grow up into him and who's the head? Christ. How do we avoid being the infants tossed with every wave on the ocean? It's by being connected to a body. We are part of a body in which we love one another, speak truth to one another, and use our respective gifts to help each other grow. Spiritual maturity cannot happen apart from connection to the broader body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 warns us not to forsake meeting together, but rather to help each other grow, spurring one another on. Earlier in Hebrews 3, it warns, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, what's the solution? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
How do we avoid our hearts being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? We exhort one another. This certainly doesn't mean less than slipping in a church and listening to a sermon. But it certainly does mean more than that. We need to enter into real relationships with people where we are known and where we know them. The kind of relationship where truth flows between us, where we help fix each other's eyes on Jesus, where we remind each other of the gospel, where we pray earnestly for one another. One of the best things you can do for your soul is to be in church anytime the doors are open. Especially, especially if you're going through a dark or hard season. If you're in a hard season right now, be in church every time you can be. doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. The Bible doesn't say, do not forsake meeting together. Unless you're an introvert, then tune in online. We all, all need to be connected to the body. And every part is necessary. If we're not connected to the body, we linger and, and die. We languish and die. Separate a coal from the other coals. It quickly dies out. It might be easy to break a single twig. It's a lot harder to break a whole bundle of twigs. Sever your pinky from the rest of your body. Ugly picture. It's not going to be doing pretty well, very well soon. The analogies could go on, but I think you see the point. Our spiritual health depends on being meaningfully connected with other believers in the context of our local church. The health of our souls is the most important kind of health we can have. I think of some medical practitioners who say something like, Spinal health is the key to your overall health. Or gut health is the key to your overall health. Get this right, everything else follows from it. Fail to get it right, be hard to be healthy in any other areas, no matter how hard you try. Well, the great physician says the most important health we can have is the health of our soul. I've spent two decades in pastoral ministry providing spiritual counsel to all sorts of people and situations. In some ways, you could say this sermon took 20 years to prepare. I can't offer four better keys to soul health than the four that I've mentioned. I see them so plainly in the scriptures, each pervasive in the scriptures. Hold to these and you will hold closely to the gospel. Practice these, and Jesus will be sweeter to you. Embrace these in godly vigor. This is not a four-step, if you just do, 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 check this checklist. No, this is all about savoring Jesus, embracing the gospel, clinging to him. Practice them when the sea is calm and life is bright. Cling to them when the sea is raging and life is dark. Each is a gift. Each gives life to our souls. And all four combined, practice over time, will ensure our soul is growing straight and true 
amidst all that the world throws at it. That means it's time. <laughs> Repent. Lament. Meditate. Connect. These are the four biblical words I leave you with. I love you. Let's pray. God, I love the people in this room. I entrust them to you. I pray that you would use this church to help each of them grow more and more like Jesus. Their souls are healthier and healthier for their good and for your glory in this place. In Jesus' name.